From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. One-on-one with U.S. Senator Michael Bennett will ask about the presidential transition, preserving the environment, and finding a way to pass a relief package in the face of the coronavirus. Our pandemic, you know, is worse today than it has been at any time during the course of COVID. Uh, This is a time when we should be coming together to address that. Plus, what he hopes to achieve with incoming Senator John Hickenlooper. Then, a big project to restore rivers in the Pike National Forest using beavers. And we'll talk with CPR's own Joanne Allen about her podcast, Been There, Done That, telling the real-life stories of and by her generation. I know that there are a million, zillion, gillion stories out there. Many of them belong to baby boomers. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. U.S. Senator Michael Bennett says it's past time for lawmakers to pass a relief package in response to the pandemic. It's one of several topics we discussed as the nation begins to look forward after the election. Senator Bennett, welcome back to the program. Uh, It's great to be back with you. Thanks for having me. You worked with President-elect Joe Biden during the Obama administration. You also ran against him during the Democratic primary. Is there a story about him that stands out in your memory that illustrates the type of leader you think he'll be? Something comes to mind right now, which is I talked to him when he was in Las Vegas and he had not done well in Iowa and New Hampshire. And basically, uh, he had almost been given up for dead and actually was losing uh, in Nevada to Bernie Sanders. And you could hear in his voice the exhaustion in some, on some level, but also the relentlessness. And just a couple of weeks later, he won in South Carolina and put the rest of us in his rearview mirror because people believed that he was the one that had the best chance of beating Donald Trump. So I, I would say that relentlessness is what comes to mind. And it's, uh, I think, inspirational in part because he's been doing this for so long. Under the Obama administration, you were considered for the Secretary of Education. If Joe Biden nominated you, would you accept? I don't think he's going to. So um, my intention is to run for re-election to the Senate, and that's what I'm going to do. All right. And if the president-elect Biden asked you to help with the transition, would you? And in what capacity? I certainly would help with the transition. I'd help do anything to have him be successful and also to, to make this exercise in self-government that has been so destroyed uh, by Donald Trump and compromised by Mitch McConnell begin to work again for the American people. That's really what we've got to do. Of course, President Trump hasn't yet conceded the election. Is his refusal to concede hindering the transition? There's no question about it. I mean, it's embarrassing to our country. It's embarrassing to democracy. I was just stopped by reporters on my way back to my office, having voted on the floor, asking whether the Republicans that were now saying that President-elect Biden should get the intelligence that he needs to do his job, uh, but that they're not yet saying whether he elected the president, whether that's a way of 
saying that he's been elected. I mean, this, these kind of semantics are not what the country needs. Joe Biden needs to have access to the intelligence. I can tell you that being a member of the Intelligence Committee, it's vital for him to have access to that intelligence. But more than that, it's vital for him and for his people to have access to the people that are working on COVID. You know, I guarantee you that 99.999% of the people that are working in the federal government want Joe Biden to have a successful transition, believe that he's an elected president, and want to get on with their jobs as well. So, you know, the fact that Donald Trump continues to play these games is not surprising to me, but it is, I think, uh, compromising the ability of the new administration to get off on a good start. And you mentioned access to the experts in the pandemic. And that's something that he says is his top priority in the pandemic, including COVID relief. That's something that's stalled in Congress. How will he and the Democrats address COVID relief, especially if Republicans remain in control of the Senate? I think it's very important for us to be very clear with the American people about what's at stake in a, in a, in a new COVID bill so people really understand it. And, and it really is just a few things, but let me give you a couple of them. One is our public health infrastructure in Colorado and in America is being deeply, deeply challenged by this pandemic. You know, we, we don't have the contact tracing that we need. We don't yet have the testing that we need. We don't have the infrastructure that we need to administer a vaccine when one is actually developed. And all of that we could do with a COVID bill. And why is that important? It's important because the likelihood of our being able to not just open school and not just open businesses, but keep school and keep businesses open is going to turn on on whether or not finally we can address the COVID crisis like we're the most powerful country in the world instead of being managed by a crisis that Donald Trump has basically ignored. So in addition, there is a lot of opportunity to provide assistance to people and to small businesses that are flat on their back because of COVID and need help getting through this economy because of what we did in the last COVID bill. You know, millions of Americans that would have fallen into poverty have not. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses that might have closed, uh, sending millions of people to the unemployment rules have stayed around. And we need to do it again if we're going to get through this crisis. Our pandemic, you know, is worse today than it has been at any time during the course of COVID. Uh, This is a time when we should be coming together to address that. So I hope Mitch McConnell won't stand in the way, and I hope we can pass a bipartisan bill and get it to Donald Trump's desk, and if if he's unwilling to sign it to Joe Biden's desk. Now, the potential price tag for that bill is part of what stalled it out in Congress, especially between Democrats and Republicans. Would you support a smaller package and one that would gain support from Republican-controlled Senate during the lame duck session? Well, I want to make sure that it's a package that's actually up to the task. Mitch McConnell is is an absolute master at pretending that he's passing something that's useful for the American people that, in fact, is not. So I'm not going to negotiate that on the radio, but I do think that it is... It's very hard for me to to believe that there's not a number that we could come to between where the House was and and where others have been that could achieve the objectives the American people need us to achieve. Aside from everything that's been going on nationally, you've also been working on the Colorado Outdoors Recreation and Economy Act that would protect large swaths of public land. It's passed in the House and it's set to get a hearing next week. What obstacles does it face in the Senate? 
Well, we're really excited about the CORE Act, which would be the most important public lands bill that has been passed for Colorado in a quarter of a century. It's got huge bipartisan support all across the state of Colorado. And I think its biggest enemy is dysfunction in the Senate with everything else. I mean, that is what we've got to find a way over the long haul to correct. In the short term, I'm extremely gratified that we're having a hearing next week for the CORE Act. And my hope is that we can actually pass it either sometime toward the end of this year or in the first quarter of next year. And when we do that, uh, we will have protected 400,000 acres of public lands in Colorado, 70,000 of which is wilderness and some of the most important watersheds that we have in the state of Colorado. And we will have anchored it all around the preservation of Camp Hale as a national historic uh, landmark. That would be a really exciting thing for our veterans and for our outdoor rec industry. You and Republican Senator Cory Gardner worked together on a number of priorities for the state. How do you think you'll work with your old boss and new junior senator, John Hickenlooper? Have you spoken about what you might work on together? Well, um, Senator Gardner and I had a, a good personal relationship, but we did work well together. I think I'm really looking forward to John Hickenlooper coming. I think he brings a wealth of experience from business and from being mayor and governor of Colorado. And we were just on the phone last night talking about some things that we could work on together from constituent service to battling climate change. So there's going to be a lot for us to do. And I saw John earlier this week. He's going to hit the ground running here. Do you have any advice for Hickenlooper on how to become an effective senator? Uh, I'm not sure I'm in a position to give him advice. I guess that, you know, I, I think that it is stick to what you, you know, told the people of Colorado. Make sure that, you know, you're representing everybody in the state, whether you know, they voted for you or not. And things have a way of working out. And, of course, that's the way John has always approached the work. So I'm not sure he needs to take that advice from me. But I think uh, we're lucky to have him in the Senate uh, and we're lucky to, to have him representing Colorado. Well, Senator Bennett, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I hope everybody stays safe. Colorado's Democratic U.S. Senator Michael Bennett. The number of coronavirus cases in eastern Colorado is climbing, and it's threatening increasingly strapped hospitals. CPR health reporter John Daly talked to one of the region's main doctors who just caught COVID-19 himself. Kurt Poppenfuss started to feel ill around Halloween. He's a doctor in the small town of Cheyenne Wells. One day at work, he had a hacking cough. His colleague, a medical assistant named Delta, got alarmed. Her eyes get really big and she starts back up and just literally goes, what was that? And I go, I don't know, Delta, but I started doing that yesterday and I got worse last night and I've been doing it ever since. Not a good thing in the middle of a deadly pandemic, but in this case, really not good, given Kurt Poppenfuss's job. I'm chief of staff and medical director of everything at Keith Memorial Hospital currently in Cheyenne County, Colorado. He is the main guy and it is a very large challenge. That's Stella Worley, CEO of the hospital. Poppenfuss is the lone full-time ER doc in the town of 900, located on the plains not far from the Kansas line. Worley is scrambling to find a fill-in replacement. If she can't, they'll have to divert ER patients elsewhere. Divert traumas in ERs from coming to our facility and send them to the next hospital down the road, which time is life sometimes, and that is not something you ever want to do. Poppenfuss is eager to sound the alarm about what he calls the Rona. 
The Rona beast is a very nasty beast, and it is not fun. It has a very mean temper. It loves a fight, and it loves to keep coming after you. He isn't sure where he picked it up, but in October, he took a trip back east. He says he was meticulous, sitting in the front, last on, first off of the plane. But on landing at DIA, Poppenfuss found himself squished in the train to the terminal. Mask wearing was good. Social distancing was not. There are people literally like inches from me, and we're all crammed like sardines in this train. And I'm going, oh, my God, I am in a super spreader event right now. A week later, the symptoms hit. The weird, wet cough, diarrhea, and a headache. After a positive test, feeling terrible, he drove three hours to Denver, insisting he go alone. I'm not going to let anybody get in this car with me and get COVID because I don't want to give anybody the Rona. County sheriff's deputies followed his car to be sure he made it. Once in the hospital, chest x-rays revealed he'd developed pneumonia. Back in Cheyenne Wells, Dr. Christine Conley picked up some of Papenfus's shifts, but she has to drive 10 hours from Fort Worth to do it each way. She says the hospital staff is spread thin. Because it's not just the doctors, it's the nurses. You know, it's hard to get spare nurses. There's not a lot of spares of anything out that far. Hospitals on the plains often send their sickest patients to big front-range hospitals. But with so many people getting sick, Conley is getting worried hospitals could be overwhelmed. Healthcare leaders created a new command system. It'll transfer patients around the state to make more room. But Conley says there is a limit. It's dangerous when the hospitals in the cities fill up and when it becomes a problem for us to send out. The planes are now being hit hard, with cases and hospitalizations rising in a way they weren't before. Rural populations tend to be poorer, older, and sicker, often with health conditions that make people vulnerable to COVID-19. Brock Slaybaugh is with the National Rural Health Association. He says 61 percent of rural hospitals do not have an intensive care unit. This is an unprecedented situation that we find ourselves in right now. I don't think that in our lifetimes we've seen anything like what is developing in terms of surge capacity. Poppenfuss says fighting the virus out in the country can be tough. In wide open spaces, social distancing is easier but measures like mask wearing aren't popular. The Western Prairie isn't big mask country. People don't wear masks out there. Bank robbers wear masks out there. He worries about what could happen if more rural Coloradans like him get sick. Healthcare in the, in the, in the rural plains and prairie is, is problematic, and I fear if we don't pay attention to that, it's going to get worse. For now, he's hanging in there and looking forward to leaving his Denver hospital bed and getting back to his patients on the plains. I'm John Daly, CPR News. A large-scale project is in the works to restore rivers in Colorado's Pike National Forest. The effort involves a surprising secret weapon, beavers. Beavers turn dry land into wetlands, which makes for healthier ecosystems, according to Mark Beardsley. He's part of the Restoration Project. They're remarkably awkward on land, and they're graceful in water. So their strategy for survival is to make things wet because they want to be in the water. That's where they're safe. So several conservation groups in Colorado are working to restore rivers by building fake dams to create a hospitable habitat for the beavers. Beardsley says it's worked up before on a smaller scale. 
One of the funnest things we do for sure is we mimic the effect of beavers in their absence. So we create dams the way that beavers would. And we think if we do it right, that it'll actually attract beavers to come and take over for us. Because we know anything we do for it to last a long, long time, we actually need nature to come in and start doing the work for us. We're going to talk more broadly about how beavers can change the environment and reduce the effects of climate change. Ben Goldfarb is the author of the book Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Eager was born out of a series you wrote for High Country News called Beaver Whisperer. You described beavers as landscape miracle drugs. What does that mean? Well, as Mark said, of course, beavers build dams, uh, and those dams turn out to be really important for the environment, right? They create these ponds and wetlands that provide all kinds of ecological benefits and services. So they're storing water like little reservoirs. They're filtering out water pollution. Uh, they're sequestering carbon, and they're creating amazing habitat for all kinds of fish and wildlife species. So they're kind of these incredible ecological Swiss army knives that are, are filling all of these different really important roles at once. Like you say, as they're storing the water, beavers can actually turn the running water into still water. Tell me more about why that's important for ecosystems to have access to still water. Yeah, you know, we know that in the American West, wetlands cover about 2% of total land area and support something like 80% of the biodiversity, right? Water is life. Uh, and beavers, by creating these water features, uh, are tremendously important. So think about being, you know, uh, so here in Washington, you know, we've got, we've got salmon, of course, in Colorado, you guys have cutthroat trout. Uh, think about being you know, a little baby fish, the length of a pinky, you know, you don't want to live in the main stem river, you're just going to get blown downstream by the current, you want to live in a, you know, a nice slow water pool or back channel or side channel or eddy with lots of brushy cover from predators. And that's exactly the kind of complex slow water habitat that beavers create. Right. So for a lot of creatures, access to just quickly running water that's running right through isn't enough. You've got to have some still water as well. Tell me more about why you have to actually build fake dams in this process. Why won't beavers just come and build them themselves? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you, if you think about kind of a, a healthy beaver-filled stream... All of those beaver dams are basically acting like kind of aquatic speed bumps, right? They're slowing the stream down, they're spreading it out, they're pushing the water out onto the floodplain. But when you lose beavers from the stream, there's nothing checking the velocity of that water. And in many cases, streams just erode really dramatically. The, you know, the kind of the force of the current basically carves them to bedrock and basically turns the stream into this incised or eroded canyon uh, like a fire hose. And it becomes really hard for beavers themselves to build back in those streams. So by building these, these beaver dam analogs, these kind of starter human-built beaver dams, you know, you're basically giving the, the beavers a leg up uh, and you're creating conditions in which they can then recolonize a, a stream that they might not be able to settle in otherwise. And beavers are pretty highly predated otherwise, right? They're not really very good on land without those dams. Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard biologists refer to them as kind of a, a fat, slow, smelly uh, package of meat, you know, <laughs> and they get eaten by cougars and, and bears and wolves in places that have wolves. So a beaver on, on land is definitely in trouble and they, they really need those dams and ponds and wetlands uh, to create their own shelter. 
So Eager describes a time when beavers were rampant in North America. Tell me what their population is like now. Yeah, it's a it's a, a good a good question. You know, we don't we don't really know. Uh, so so certainly historically, there were hundreds of millions of beavers in in North America, as many as four hundred million. Uh, and now there are you know maybe ten to fifteen million. We don't we don't really know. Uh, so you know certainly they're not an endangered species, right? They're fairly abundant, uh, but they still exist at a tiny fraction of their historical prominence on the landscape. So projects like this one are, are really helpful in kind of recreating the historic conditions that would have existed uh, prior to the arrival of Europeans and the, the industrial fur trade. Have you seen dam projects like this work anywhere before? Yeah, these kinds of, of beaver dam analog projects are, are becoming increasingly prominent and, and beneficial really all over the American West. Uh, you know, in, in Oregon and Washington, there are some fantastic beaver dam analog projects that are creating salmon habitat. Uh, in Nevada, you see them being used uh, to, to uh, enhance wet meadows for sage grouse. Uh, in Montana, they're being used to basically capture old mining waste, right? Because the dam slows the water down and all of the heavy metals being carried along in the water column kind of settle out. Uh, so, yeah, this, this, these kinds of beaver dam analog projects are, are becoming uh, really popular. Your colleague, Dr. Emily Fairfax, recently completed a study that proved beavers can work to slow and prevent wildfires. How does that work? Yeah, so so Emily actually conducted this research at, at, uh, at Colorado State University during her, her PhD. Uh, and this is a, a really important study. So, you know, for a long time, one of the things that people in the beaver world suspected is that beavers kind of played this important fire break or fire refugia function, right? Because water doesn't burn, you know, and by spreading water out across the landscape, you know, the hypothesis was uh, that that beavers, you know, would, would prevent the spread of wildfire, or at least slow the spread of wildfire. And this is something that had been anecdotally observed, uh, but never really quantified. So Emily did this, this wonderful study looking at, at a number of fires in a number of different states around the American West, and basically found that in streams that had beavers, uh, you know, wildfires were were much were they were they were not nearly as bad. Essentially, um, that the streams stayed much lusher and greener and wetter uh, as the fire passed over, and that's really important again for small mammals, amphibians, birds, uh, even you know livestock in some cases potentially, uh, which can all use that that kind of beaver built lifeboat essentially that wildfire refugia and survive the fire and then and then repopulate the landscape from there. I love this idea of dams as lifeboats for animals and wildfires. Just briefly before we go, Ben, what do you love about beavers and what can we learn from them? You know, I, I love so many things about beavers. You know, I think that the, that one thing about them is just how amazingly human they are, right? I mean, like us, they modify their surroundings to enhance their own food and shelter. They live in these wonderful kind of cooperative family structures. Uh, but, you know, whereas human infrastructure and human landscape modification tends to harm other forms of life, Beavers are, of course, creating habitat for other life. They're sheltering all of these, these other species. So our impulse to build tends to be destructive. Uh, theirs tends to be constructive for nature. And I think there's a lot we could learn from that. Ben, thank you so much for sharing this. Thanks a lot for having me. Ben Goldfarb is the author of Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. We've been talking about how beavers can change the environment and reduce the effects of climate change. When we come back, the special meaning behind the phrase, been there, done that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Subscribe to The Lookout from CPR News to get the big news and get more connected to Colorado. The Lookout newsletter is delivered to your inbox with the big stories from across Colorado every morning. Subscribe to The Lookout now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Baby boomers have lived through a lot, from the civil rights movement of the 1960s and the Vietnam War to the era of internet and smartphones. You probably know Joanne Allen as CPR's All Things Considered host. She's also collecting stories of the baby boom generation for her podcast, Been There, Done That. Joanne, I'm glad you're here. You have been a news host for more than three decades, so you've told a lot of stories. What about baby boomers' stories made you want to start a podcast? Well, first of all, I'm a baby boomer, and I think that my generation has a lot of stories to tell, particularly in terms of having seen changes in our lifetimes. So I know that there are a million, zillion, gillion stories out there. Many of them belong to baby boomers. I want to do some reminiscing. I also want to hear about things in life that I never knew about from people my age. And um, there aren't a lot of podcasts for boomers. The older generation is still trying to find digital to a certain extent. So I think the audience is not only varied and wide, but really just a whole lot of stories that I'm hoping to get to. And you're telling these stories, they're baby boomers stories. Who is it for? I thought at first it was for baby boomers. That's what I had in mind, that we could have like a little forum and a little round table to talk about our issues. But I'm realizing that more younger people are also enjoying the podcast because they want to hear about their parents' generation. And they also are hopefully putting their parents onto been there, done that. And I'm one of those younger generation who are listening. And I'm appreciating one of the things that I really enjoy is that you're asking your guests to tell stories. And a lot of them are stories that happened when they were younger. But then you're asking them to reflect on those stories with the perspective of having gotten older. So in your very first episode, you and your friend Kathy retell a story from your teenage years. And I want to share a moment from the podcast where you and Kathy have a really frank discussion. But first, can you set the scene? What happened to the two of you? Kathy and I were friends uh, in Mobile, Alabama. We went to high school in Mobile. And she could come over to my house. This is the 1960s. She could come to my house because white people could go wherever they want. I couldn't go to her house because there were certain neighborhoods and definitely certain homes that you were not welcomed in. So whenever we got together, it was always at my house. So this one day we decided, hey, her parents were out of town. Why don't we go to her house? And we did. We went into her bedroom, and I don't know, we were looking at magazines or playing music or whatever. And suddenly we heard the side door open, and it was a neighbor. We didn't know who it was. I didn't know who it was. I thought it was her parents coming home. So I got really, really scared. She got really scared. We didn't know what to do, but within maybe five seconds, 
I decided I had to hide under the bed. So if, in case one of her parents came back to the bedroom, they didn't see me because we had no idea what would happen. At that point, Kathy greeted the neighbor, ushered them out of the house. No one ever knew you were there. The conversation you and Kathy had about your drive home really stuck with me. Then everything changed. You know, it became very solemn. Oh, yeah. The whole mood was just like, I guess it was like coming down from that, you know, that adrenaline rush, you know. And then when we came down, it was like we were just both kind of numb, or I was. Yeah. I just didn't know what to think, you know? Yeah. I felt numb and ashamed that I didn't stand up, that I allowed myself to be put in that position. Right. Put myself in that position of not really standing up, but I I have forgiven myself as time has gone on because I was only a teenager. Right. Well, you know, I never knew you felt that way, really. I never knew that you were disappointed in yourself. Oh, very much so. I mean... I just thought that since it was uh, an act of spontaneity like that and so, just so quick that, you know, I never knew. I never. What did you think about me? I don't think I thought about you, <laughs> to tell you the truth. I think Good. I was so overwhelmed with feeling shame. Yeah. And being maybe a little pissed off, but not knowing what to say. I yeah. remember riding home. You drove me home. I don't remember us speaking. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I don't think we did. I'm sure I was in my head, but no, I was just trying to be funny that on the drive home, I was just probably going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Yeah. But it was total silence. Yeah, there was a lot of shame there for for a while. I didn't know that. Well, I'm sorry. Well, thank you. You said in the podcast that you've told this story a lot of times, but it sounds like this is the first time you and Kathy unpacked it together. And maybe the first time that Kathy apologized? Well, to start off, I don't think she had anything to apologize for because we were in it together. But it is the first time that we seriously talked about it because we've joked about it throughout the years. It is true. I always tell people this story about my girl, Kathy, with her mobile Alabama accent. I love it. But um, I guess we had to be in a serious arena a radio studio to really get into it and to feel that time again. I didn't know I was going to tell her that I felt shame. Um, So that was a surprise to me. But after I listened back to it, I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I felt. That's where I was. I think it's a platitude to say age brings wisdom, but what value do you think there is from unpacking these stories from your teen years now that you're older, both for you and for other people? I think it's important that we remember history because it, you know, lives change throughout the decades and things change throughout the decades, especially with race relations. We tend to ebb and flow with race relations and how we think things are going. In the 60s, you know, integration was happening. I was among the first students in my high school to integrate. It was about 30 black students and 800 white students. And so um, that was a momentous and important occasion. And we thought that we were on the rise. But then, you know, the ensuing years, civil rights, uh, affirmative action, all of that kind of became passe in a way. And so things devolved. 
And we are where we are today because we haven't been paying attention. So what I like to do is to remind people of where we've been, and you've heard this before, in order for us to know where we're going. And it's time that we re-examine a lot of things, especially around race in this country. So I'm hoping that people listening, they will learn from that. We haven't really come too much farther than that. So it's kind of a history lesson in a way. And it's kind of like a collective memory. Um, When you started this podcast, were there specific stories or types of stories that you knew you wanted to tell? Not really. It more or less, I mean, this is a very loose podcast. (laughs) It's only, I'm the editor, the interviewer. I'm luckily not the graphics person or the, uh, the engineer. I think it's more or less when I start to approach the deadline of a, now I need to have a subject <laughs> that something almost miraculously drops into my lap. Many of these stories really just became. Well, one of those stories that came to you is Anne Marie's story of coming out in the 1980s. Here she is telling you about coming out to her dad. I knew it was going to be easier for me to come out to my father first. And so... I was in my early 30s when when this happened, and I remember going over to their house. I remember getting my father um, aside and saying, you know, I really have to tell you something. Um, I want to be happy in my life, and I haven't been happy up to this point because I haven't shared something with you, and I'm going to share something with you, and that is that I'm gay. And I remember looking at my father, and he just started crying and it crushed me Mm. it broke my heart to think that the parent that I was closest to was crushed and I I looked at that his tears as being disappointment or um, wanting to be far away from me Um, I just had to hold still and, and and let him do his crying and then he looked at me and he said, Amory, I've known this since high school, but I just didn't know how to talk to you about this. And he said, I'm crying because you've had to spend so many years not being yourself. And that brought you to tears. True. True. Tell me about how you connected with Amory. Well, you know, your earlier question of how did I come across these stories or did I plan them? I realize now that maybe someone said one or two things to me and I thought, oh, that would make a good podcast. That was the situation with Anne Marie, who is a friend of mine. She was visiting and I don't know, we were just talking about coming out stories. And when she told me this story with her dad, all I could do was run for my microphone and ask her questions about that and see if she was willing to get into it. I have to tell you, Avery, there is something about me that people will tell me stuff that I don't think they were prepared to talk about. It's, it's great. And hopefully it will give some people courage. And hopefully it will give the family or the person who's being told some grace. Joanne, the pandemic started while you were putting out your first season of this podcast. Your 80-year-old sister, Betty, caught COVID-19 and survived. The two of you talked about it on Been There, Done That. 
Why do you think you survived COVID at the age of 80 with three cardiac stents? By the grace of God, prayers from my family, everyone was praying for me after it got okay. I found out all family members were praying for me. And the help of the nurses, the nurses in that ICU COVID union were excellent. The only thing I didn't like was them coming in at 5 o'clock in the morning, waking me up to stick to get blood. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but other than that, they were. But they were. They were very, very professional, very attentive. All I had to do was cough, and they would wonder, "Are you okay?" You know, that kind of stuff. What was it like for you to interview your own sister for this story? It was a kick in the head in many ways. But I had interviewed her once before, in the late 80s, could have been the early 80s, I was working for ABC Radio in New York, and there was a snowstorm in Tucson, and my sister and and her family were stationed in Tucson. A snowstorm at Christmas in Tucson was very unusual 20, 30 years ago. You see it more today. And so I called her up to get some cuts for the newscast. So this is the second time that I've interviewed her, but this was a much more profound interview because I was working, you know, CPR. I was on the air. I had silenced my phone and told everyone, every family member, don't get a hold of me while I'm on the air in case Betty tests positive or something horrible goes wrong. And so I remember, even though I silenced my phone, texts still came through. (laughs) And one read, you know, that she had tested positive. And I think I had one or two more newscasts to go, and I really kind of steeled myself. And then I broke down after, you know, after it was over. But my sister is such a joy and such a fun person. She has lived a life of just fun, you know. I mean, she's got kids and she's had hardships and all of that kind of stuff. But she's a very light person. Everybody seems to know her. I have classmates who know her better than I know them. So after I interviewed her and the the podcast was published— I called her up and I said, what do you think? And she said, it didn't sound like me. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what to do about that. And she says, it just doesn't sound like me. And her, I get her husband in the background and her kids say, mom, it does sound like you. And so she eventually accepted that fact. But um, it was fun, but it was also emotional because I recalled how I felt one time when I was just lying on the floor and I was doing some stretches in the morning, and my and I it just hit me and kept hitting me and hitting me that Betty was in the hospital with COVID, 80. She's got, you know, health problems. I will probably never see her again, is what I thought. And it was just horrible. I mean, when we hear these stories on the radio about how folks can't get to see their loved ones before they pass, or they almost seem like they just disappear from the face of the earth because they have COVID and they're in a hospital. I take that to heart every time I have to report on that because it's gut-wrenching. It's terrible. And I don't think anyone should lighten it up in any way, shape, or form or lessen the pain by just saying, oh, that was just 10 people who died. Those are people who were loved and cared for. And that's what I got from doing this with Betty, is real empathy 
for folks who have gotten COVID. Do you think Betty knew how gut-wrenching it was for you on the outside of the hospital before y'all talked about it on the podcast? No, because she, even in the podcast, when I, it, I relayed this to her that I was lying on the floor and I was going, come on, Betty Boop, because we call her Boop. Uh, and I was just, you know, just yelling and screaming. And I told her about that. And she was like, wow, I didn't know that. And she said, well, that helped me get well, too. That is really kind. I, I think that this year we're hearing a lot about folks who are over 60 in terms of COVID-19, just the statistics and precautions people should take. What I love about your conversation with Betty, though, is that we are hearing from someone who is over 60. Do you feel like people who are aging are getting left out of conversations about them? I do. And that's um, that's partly why I'm I am doing this podcast is because there's such a wealth of information inside the brains and bodies of people who have gotten into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. There's a lot to be said for experience. There's a lot to be said for knowing what you will do in certain situations. There's a lot to be said knowing your body. As you get older, you really become, because of a few of the aches and pains here and there, but you really become much more aware of your body. I do, you know, and aware of how, how I affect other people. I'm just much more attuned to how I, I move in the world. And that's valuable, not just to me, but for others to see that. And others can see that with older Americans if we put them out there more, if they get to, you know, be on podcasts. It's like that John Prine song, Hello in There which is an incredible song about people getting older and the kids go away and there's less and less to do. Why aren't we saying to those people, looking at them in the eye and say, hello in there, how are you? What are you doing? What's up? Now, that tends to be maybe older, older people, 80s, 90s, and so forth. But I'm hoping that my boomer generation will move into our 80s and 90s with a lot more force and a lot more visibility than previous generations. I'm taking away that taboo of talking about aging. I love aging. I wouldn't want to be one second younger, not even the 30 minutes or so ago that I walked into this studio with you. I mean, I just enjoy it because I know myself better. And I know how to, I know how to get along with other people better. You know, I mean, there are times when you just have to blow your stack. <laughs> but for the most part, I'm, I, I do feel more gracious towards other people. Joanne, that is such good perspective. Your stories that we've highlighted so far have been pretty heavy, can you tell us about one of the more lighthearted interviews? I'm thinking of the one about marijuana. I'll let you set it up. Well, I uh, was speaking with Linda, is her name, and she was telling me the story of how she was growing marijuana. At least they had a plant. She and her husband had a marijuana plant back in the 1980s in Berkeley, California, of course. Um, and they were really proud of this plant. And they were cultivating it, hoping that it would uh, bud and, and flower so they could, you know, smoke some of it. And it turned out that somebody was trying to beat them, too, 
being able to enjoy the plant. Actually, it was my husband who arrived at the scene of the crime first. (laughs) He said he was walking down the street, and he saw a very large plant emerge from our driveway. It was so strange, because really all he saw was the plant and some legs. And so it was sort of like a walking plant. It took him a minute to figure out what was happening with this walking bush. So, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So down the street, he sees legs, only legs. And a very large plant. And a very large plant. Right, coming out of our driveway. And so no one is stealing the tomato plant. No, no, it's not the tomato plant. It takes him a minute to figure out what the hell's going on. And then he realizes that somebody has just stolen our marijuana plant and is making off with it. This story actually has a connection to the CPR newsroom. Megan Verlee is our public affairs editor, and Linda, the woman in the story, is Megan's mom. Right, and she had told me this story a a couple of times uh, about her mom. And I said, hey, will your mom talk to me when she comes for a visit? She said, sure. That is hilarious, and folks are going to have to listen to find out if Megan Verlee's mom got her marijuana plant back. (laughs) She didn't get it back because... You know, you're going to chase some young boy down the street, especially in 1980s. Think about it. In the 1980s, it's not 2020 in, in Denver or in Colorado, where you can walk down the street with marijuana and that's no problem. They're going to chase down someone with a marijuana plant? What, then they're going to call the police and say their plant was stolen? <laughs> no. That was back then. That is a funny story. Now, you started this podcast last year with House of Pod, a Denver podcast incubator. That's on top of your full-time job as CPR's All Things Considered host. How has it been juggling both? Well, you know, the pandemic, in a sense, has been good for me. (laughs) Uh, And I don't mean to make light of it for people who are suffering through it, but it's been good for me because it's easier to work this much when all I have to do is roll out of bed, not even comb my hair not even brush my teeth, and just start working. Or I can work up into the time I'm about to get in the bed. And is hosting a podcast like this something that you could see yourself doing even after you retire from hosting news? Oh, absolutely. That's why I'm doing it. I'm ready to make a move. (laughs) I mean, I'm not resigning anytime soon, but, you know, I'm looking forward to continuing with my craft, which is interviewing and and audio, uh, but not dealing with news with learning from other people, with talking to interesting people. So, yeah, I want to be a podcaster when I grow up, Avery. (laughs) Um, Season two for Been There, Done That, it just kicked off. Can you give us a hint about what's coming up? Well, the first episode is um, with Navy veteran E.J. Carr, who remembers some of the harrowing experiences he had in training and in serving in Vietnam. He had much more abuse heaped upon him when he was in training than when he was in Vietnam. But he reads from letters that he wrote 50 years ago, and he just talks about what it was like to be a Navy flyer who was in an airplane, you know, going up and down the coast chasing enemy submarines and supply ships. And then also we have an update from my sister Betty about her condition now. You'll have to listen to the podcast to know how she's doing. But you can probably tell that she is not doing poorly from how I'm answering your question. And then the second episode, uh, which I'm working on right now, I speak with a trans activist who 
transitioned at the age of 60 and is a Vietnam War vet, by the way. So she lived through a long time of her life hiding, knowing who she was. But the moment for change for her came late in life. Well, it's an exciting conversation to look forward to. Joanne, thanks so much for talking. You're welcome, Avery. Thank you. CPR's Joanne Allen hosts the podcast Been There, Done That. It's available on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Baby boomers who want to get in touch with Joanne to share their stories can visit beentheredonethatpodcast.com. Joanne is also partnering with Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC Studios. It's their podcast about topics often treated as taboo. She'll be guest hosting conversations about aging. Those premiere in December. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.